Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. We are on episode 52, and this week we're talking about the problems with assets under management fees, or AUM. We're going to talk about why it results in a fragmented balance sheet, why you end up with isolated advice, the inherent conflicts of interest in it, but we're also going to talk about uh, some solutions. But Justin, before we start the AUM bashing, I feel like it's fair to take a step back and say, okay, it's better. But but why is it better than what's came before it and why can it be improved upon? So I think painting that context, giving it a fair shake would be a good place to start. Yeah, that's a great point. I do think AUM is just far better than working with a hybrid uh, non-fee only firm. <clears throat> so if you have a duly registered firm, most nationwide firms that you've heard of are, uh, that's a pretty conflicted business model. Um, so working with a fee-only advisor who charges AUM 1% on your assets or 0.8% on your assets, whatever that may be, that's superior than working with a hybrid firm uh, that is not always doing things in your best interest. Uh, what else? Right. I would also say that assets under management is good because like, the financial incentives are superior than previous models before it, right? So we're not, we've talked ad nauseum about uh, commissions, kickbacks, all of those things. If you think about assets under management, your advisor has an incentive to grow your assets. They, have, they, they Actually, they have two incentives. They have incentives to gather more of your assets, so manage more of it. And then also for that number to get bigger because their, their fee goes up, right? So that's a good incentive. If you think about like a sales-based structure, they have a really front-loaded incentive to, to get a transaction to take place, but not really an incentive for ongoing maintenance or management or growth as your life, as your financial plan changes. So I think just having that financial incentive, is it's, it's a pretty good thing. That's a great thought, Jared. And you know, I do think it's better than hourly advice or project-based financial planning where you pay a CFP to look at something at a point in time, but they're not going to stick with you for the long haul. Financial planning is such a long-term endeavor, and there's 50 or 60 variables that make up your financial life, and most of those variables change every few years. So I do think having an ongoing relationship, even if you're paying, you know, 1% of assets for it, uh, is probably better than the alternative. Yeah. And like a great example of this is like, you know, I think of an accountant, right? Where they bill hourly. So clients have an incentive not to reach out to the client, but if they reached out to the client, they'd probably get more proactive tax, tax planning, right? They, they don't reach out to their accountant throughout the year because it costs some money. And then they get a big bill at tax time that they could have avoided had they done proper planning. Right. So, you know, they, they pay people for the tax preparation service, but the real thing they need isn't exactly what they're they're paying for. It's additional hours billed. So it just creates this weird incentive where they emphatically need help with this stuff, but they're just not going to reach out because there's additional costs. And so we see that a lot with financial planning. Hey, I just want you to look at my insurance or, hey, I just want you to look at this. But all these things have trade-offs and consequences and they're dynamically changing over time. So you're really going to get fragmented point in time advice, which isn't how financial planning or life works. Great point. 
And, you know, I think we can link in the show notes some of our previous content, some articles we've done on this topic. Uh, and I think my favorite one is is how hiring an advisor has really become a convoluted mess. Um, so we'll link that in the show notes. Feel free to check it out. But I think what we want to really pinpoint, we want to cover one thing today. And it's something that we've seen a lot in the last several months. And that is a client has a certain amount of money. Let's just use an example. Let's say there's $5 million and a family hires an advisor, they hire an investment firm, and they give the investment firm 25% of it. So they give them a chunk of the assets and the investment firm is managing those assets, but then the other chunk is not under the investment firm's purview and that's out of sight. So that's the big problem we want to address. Um, where should we, where should we start with that? Justin, so like you frame the problem, but like, what's, what's the problem with that? Right. So like, why is that a bad thing? I think it leads to a few things. So the end result, every time I've seen this, it leads to a fragmented balance sheet. Every time I've looked at this, it has led to a case where the family's assets five years, 10 years later, the allocation was totally out of whack. And it, it was not allocated how it should be. Um, so I think that's the end result. And the problems that produce that end result are, well, the investment firm has no fiduciary obligation on the chunk of assets that they're not managing. The investment firm is typically not even looking at the assets that they're not managing. There's no fiduciary standard on those assets. And so, and, you know, with that AUM model, if put your, like, if you're listening to this, put your glasses on as if you are the investment firm. So think as if you're the CEO of that investment firm. And, you know, if that's, if that's your model where you charge 1% of assets, your job, your thought is, Hey, let's get more assets on board so that we can turn on billing. That's what drives revenue. So that's the goal. So a lot of times you're not really thinking about assets that are not given to you. Well, you're thinking, how can I win them? How can I get them on here so I can start building them? But there's not deep financial planning. There's not tax planning. There's not estate planning questions being asked of the part of the balance sheet that is not under the advisor's purview. Yeah. And to be clear, there's there's a spectrum here, right? So there's some AUM advisors that'll manage a small piece and provide advice on everything. But oftentimes what we see, if there's not a financial incentive connected to out assets outside of the purview, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Like, hey, I'm not getting paid on it. And hey, if I work for a big brokerage firm and I have 300 clients, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend any time on non-revenue producing activities. Just because I I don't have time to do that. But to Justin, I would also add, man, there's some pretty big conflicts of interest, right? Like if we if we go back to okay, what's our North Star? Financial planning is optimizing for your life and considering the financial implications, right? Like, like if that's the thing, like if a client comes to you and says, hey, I want to pay off my mortgage and you're an AUM advisor, you know, hopefully you tell them, hey, you know, to do whatever they feel most comfortable with. We have a big financial incentive to have them not pay off that mortgage, right? Because their revenue would drop proportionally. And, you know, whether or not paying off a mortgage makes sense financially, it's kind of depending on your mortgage rate, your goals and that. But but if that helps you sleep better at night and that, you know, that's a financial goal of yours and thing you're solving for, you know, your your advisor is going to take a take a pay cut for you fulfilling a dream. Um, 
which is kind of a kind of a convoluted trade-off. The other potential, you know, pitfall in terms of asset gathering being problematic is a lot of advisors are really aggressive for the for the 401k rollover, which, you know, makes sense. A lot of assets to manage. Hopefully they're advising on it before it's rolled over. Uh because they can see the investment options help you manage that. But a lot of them will wait till it's rolled over. But the problem with rolling it over is if you want to do after uh, rollover IRA contributions, backdoor backdoor Roth IRA contributions, having that big pre-tax rollover IRA creates some potential tax consequences called the pro rata rule, which we don't have probably the time to get into all the nuance of that. But a big 401k rollover, just know this, a big 401k rollover could jeopardize your ability to do after-tax backdoor Roth contributions. And, you know, if if you're like a lot of our clients and you, and you have an encore career where you're doing some part-time consulting, you know, that could be that could make a meaningful difference to your financial situation. So, not only does it result in hey, this isolated advice, but you know, I would argue AUM has less conflicts, but it does have conflicts. That's well put. Also, what if you're 55? What if you have enough assets to retire and you want to leave your job, but the best way to make that happen might be to keep your 401k in the 401k. And if you're 55, you leave your company, you're allowed to access the 401k penalty free, right? You're not 59 and a half yet. You can't do that in an IRA, but in a 401k, you can. Um, and so a lot of different options there where removing that conflict of interest can be good. Uh, now I think we want to, you know, we want to cover three main issues. So number one, it's pretty impossible for you to evaluate whether or not an investment firm, if you give them a chunk of your money, it's impossible for you to evaluate whether they did a good job in one year, two years, or five years. So we'll go into that, but that's problem number one. I don't know how you're going to properly evaluate a firm when you give them just a, a portion of the assets. Number two, it leads to a model where the only thing the investment firm is doing is investing the chunk you gave them, uh, which means there's dozens of areas of your financial life that are ignored. Uh, number three, it leads to a, a fragmented balance sheet. And so, Jared, where should we start here? Yeah, let's start with it, like the the investment piece, because like a lot of people, like right, like. The problem is I call this like advisor roulette where like you say, hey, I'm going to diversify or hey, I don't know who to pick. So I'm going to pick a bunch of different advisors and have them do separate things. Um, there's a few problems with that, right? None of these people are talking to each other. So they're likely to end up with similar portfolios on the backside. And then who is actually doing a good job, right? Because like a long-term investment philosophy, right? If you think about like a quantitative factor-based investment portfolio, some you know investment factors will historically deliver excess risk adjusted returns but they'll have ongoing 2 3 year periods where they underperform their benchmark and so think about warren buffett if you invested with warren buffett you know, even early in his career in the wrong 3 year 3 or 4 year decade you would have you know you would have grossly regretted the decision over over 3 years you would have thought you were crazy for having invested with him um and so you also have to keep in mind each of these firms probably have different investment mandates, different North Stars, different benchmarks that they are trying to beat, if you will. And so just looking at investment return number, this portfolio did X, this portfolio did Y. It's not that simple. And portfolio X may have had the better return, but it may have been really speculative. You might've made all your money investing in crypto derivatives or something, something wild like that, that inevitably is going to pop. So, you know, just looking for, Hey, I need performance and I need it now is a really 
lackluster reason to engage an advisor and to even pin advisors over against one another. Yes, over really long periods of time, an advisor managed portfolio should exceed the benchmark of what you can get on your own, right? Um, but just over one, two, three year time frames with different advisors and different objectives, it's really hard to delineate, okay, who's doing what they should be and who's uh, who's overperforming, who's underperforming, because it's just not a long enough time horizon. <clears throat> Jared, you used a really good example there with Warren Buffett. So if you put real numbers to that, pretend it's 1970, you've got a million dollars to invest and you're, you're interviewing Warren Buffett and then, I don't know, Merrill Lynch, let's just say. And if you pick the wrong three-year stretch, Warren Buffett had bad stretches, just like you mentioned. Um, so you may have picked against Buffett and then you wake up 50 years later and that would have been a 10, $20 million mistake because you zoomed in on a three-year period where he struggled. I think another really tangible example is, let's say you do this from 2004 to 2008. Well, I mean, you and I sitting here today, 2004 to 2008, we can tell you which part of the market screamed and did better than any other part during that year, during those five, four or five years. It's emerging markets. So it's, it's getting international positions that have exposure to China, India, Russia, Brazil. And Jared, what does that even mean? So you're going to pick the advisor that happened to have a little bit more emerging markets than the other advisor? Well, what did emerging markets do from 2008 to today? Yeah. Not well at all. And so when you get when you give a a chunk of your money to an investment manager and then you're going to assess well what was the performance over a one year two year five year period it's completely ludicrous it it flies in the face of how you should think about long term allocation of how you should think about compounding wealth what would be a better for now i also want to give a caveat before i move on and ask you a question i want to say that when clients do this i don't blame clients for doing this at all I think the blame should be on investment firms for having structures that encourage this. I don't blame a client for doing this because back to the hypothetical, let's say you have five or $10 million and you're working with a random investment firm that's going to charge you 0.7% on your assets. Well, yeah, I mean, that's $70,000 a year to hand them $10 million. So I don't blame you. I don't blame the client for saying, I'm not sure these investment fees are lined up properly. I'm not sure that this is going to be a net positive for my balance sheet. And maybe we should start out with a lot less. So I don't blame the client for doing this. But it is completely absurd to give a chunk of your money away for two years and then try to ascertain well, if the performance was good or bad in that two years, that's going to dictate where I allocate for the next 32 years. So Jared, what would be a better way of approaching how do you make investment decisions over the long haul? Right. It's all about finding your fit, right? Finding somebody you're philosophically aligned with, where you align with their investment philosophy to do comprehensive investment management right? That like considers all of the areas of your financial plan and, and figures out how all of them touch one another, not just the bucket of money that's being managed, right? Because if you're getting isolated advice, like it really isolated advice leads to suboptimal outcomes, right? And so like, really that's the thesis, like that, that is it. And so finding somebody to man, like review your tax return, to review your estate and insurance documents, to 
uh, man, so to do what's called household level investment rebalancing to increase the tax efficiency of a portfolio to put different types of assets in different buckets to increase the you know the tax favored growth of those accounts and understanding all the various tax consequences, right? Things like that are really what improve your investment process. And, and, and that's, so that's what I would focus on. A lot of people are outcome oriented investors, right? Like how do I have a good financial plan? It's like find somebody who gets a best market return. We have bad place to start. Cause that's totally outcome oriented, right? Look for an advisor with a good process where they're comprehensive, where they're managing everything, where they're considering taxes, where they're being proactive and that over decades compounded will lead to a great outcome. You know, I think, I think if I'm trying to think about how I would allocate my family's money in an ideal world, you would have 20 years to do a test run. So then you could, you know, give a chunk to one advisor, a chunk to another advisor, and you could look at over 20 years. The problem is you don't, you don't have that. You don't get to restart the 20 years and go back and make the right choice. So the common sense approach would be to ask the question to vet potential managers and say, is this an evidence-based approach that makes sense to stick to for 50 years? Or is it a sales approach? Is it a fad? Is this an enduring investment plan that, that makes sense for a long, multi-generational period? Um, and I think that's where you've got to start. Because unfortunately, you know, we don't have 20, 30-year windows to kind of test out um, and then make a decision after that. Investment advisors and firms that charge assets under management is like there's two services that are generally provided with that fee. There's investment management, which is managing the money, and financial planning, which is basically tactically allocating, you know, it's retirement planning, it's life insurance projections, it's all of those things. Like, so also part of it is okay, have a sound investment philosophy, but also find somebody that does financial planning. Because like, e like I would say, like even the AUM example, hey, there's somebody paying 70 bips. Somebody pays 70 bips to just do investment management. So just manage the money and do no financial planning. And they can, they can charge that. And some firms will charge an AUM fee and provide planning. We'd say that's still a shortcoming, but right? Like good advice is, is the synergy. It is investment management. It is financial planning. It is those two things in concert together uh, with financial planning being the thing that drives investment management. So you need, you need both of those. That's well put. Uh, should we move on to number two? Yep, let's do it. So number two, if you are giving a, a small chunk of your money to an investment firm, but not all of it, it often leads to a model where the only thing the firm is doing is investing the chunk you've given them. I don't think I've ever seen a firm that is doing this where they just invest a chunk. I don't think I've ever seen a scenario where they're doing the client's tax return. Have you? No. I And, you know, I don't know how much estate planning they're doing either. I don't know if they're reviewing insurance policies, building a risk management plan. And, you know, I mentioned doing the tax return. In most cases, they're not even doing tax planning. But Jared, to that end, I mean, if you have, say, 30% of your money with one firm and then 70% is somewhere else, maybe it's at other firms, maybe you're self-managing it. Pretend you're in the driver's seat of that firm managing 30%. What tax advice would you give them if you can see 30% but don't don't have purview over seven the other 70%? Incomplete. Yeah. I don't know if you can give any tax advice. 
It's interesting. We had a case, you know, recently over the course of the last year where this was happening. And so a, a person had given a chunk of their assets to an investment firm to manage. And that investment firm was giving some tax planning advice to do something and try to, you know, move assets from a pre-tax IRA to a Roth IRA. And it ended up being really bad advice. It ended up being an amount of a Roth conversion that should not be happening. That just, it, it, it made no sense. But in that case, I mean, I don't blame the investment firm for that advice. How in the world could you ever give specific tax planning adv advice if you don't know what's happening behind the door? Yeah. Or even just give like a thoughtful, thoughtful allocation, right? Like let's say, let's say you're a client and you have some large oil and gas positions with embedded capital gains that you don't want to sell because of the tax consequences, which we get. And then you don't tell, you don't tell your advisor you give them, you know, 25% of your portfolio and they're running a value oriented portfolio. So buying, you know, low price to earning or price to book or whatever value metric you use stocks. And some of the cheapest ones are, oh, great, a lot of energy. So now your advisor has a systematic overweight to energy and you on your personal balance sheet that the advisor is not managing has a systematic overweight to energy, right? All because those two pieces aren't talking together. So you're paying a professional to basically duplicate your existing investment exposure, which is like another thing that we see. And that's such a perfect example. And I'd, I'd also use that as a reason to go back to number one, the point of, hey, you really can't evaluate a manager's performance over a two-year window. So let's pretend they did that. They have a huge energy overweight. And let's pretend that this is, you know, at some point between 2010 and 2020, where oil and gas really struggled. Well, they'd look really bad. Now let's pretend it's 2021 to 2023 and they're looking brilliant, but they're not brilliant. It just so happened that that's what happened to that sector in both of those periods of time. Yeah. Benchmark adjusted return, right? Like your advisor could say, Hey, I got you, I was running on a hundred percent equity portfolio and I got you 10% from uh 20, from the bottom of, from 2009 to 2020. It's like, wow, that sounds really exciting. But knowing that the market for three basis points, you could have gotten, you know, two to three percent, two, 200 to 300 basis points more a year just by, you know, owning an index fund. Um, not as compelling, right? So you also have to know, okay, what's the ben benchmark adjusted return? Well put, well put. Justin, what's the, what's the final problem? Or I guess the, the, the other problem you want to talk about. Yeah, the last problem is that it leads to a fragmented balance sheet. And so if an advisor is handling 30% of your money, the question always becomes, well, what are you going to do with the other 70%? And rarely is there enough communication, enough planning to map that out. And so the end result is you wake up and you've either got a severe over-allocation to one industry or you've got a severe under-allocation to, to multiple industries. Or in most cases, you have a severe underallocation to an entire asset class. And these days with the stock market being volatile, we also have a rise in interest rate that, that has made cash much more appealing than it has been in decades. So it's really tempting to say, hey, with excess cash, let's buy CDs. Let's put it in high yield savings accounts. But if you're trying to make money last, if you're trying to produce income for a 30, 40 year window, guess what? Making four and a half percent on cash today does not solve that problem. 
And so it really leads to a picture where you've got a fragmented balance sheet that is not lined up with your long-term goals and needs. What then is a client to do, right? And then I guess I would give you like the final thing to to pub our our fee schedule, right? Because we feel like we recognize these conflicts and intentionality, but, but like most firms are AUM. So like you've presented kind of this problem, talked about the issues with it. Okay. We've given some nuance. Hey, not all AUM firms are the same. What should somebody look for in light of this? I think you do want to be in a situation where an advisory team is looking at everything. And I would put it this way, Jared, they don't necessarily need to manage everything. I mean, you know, we tell clients this all the time. We don't necessarily have to be the discretionary manager on everything, but we do need to advise on everything. Um, so I think that's the first thing. Is the firm you're talking to, are they going to advise on everything? Anything else you'd add? Yeah. I mean, right. Like a good way to discern is, okay, what is their process, right? Like kind of getting back to process versus outcome. Like what doc sorts of documents are they asking for? Right. Cause at the end of the day, assets under management is just a fee arrangement. Right. So, like, what we're really talking about is comprehensive advice. So, not all AUM advisors are going to miss that. But, um, I mean, this is why we're big proponents for flat fee uh, and why we're, net, you know, we're kind of a net investable, advisable net worth retainer model. Um, as net worth goes up, complexity goes up. But, right. There's a, there's a lack of incentive to, you know, hyper aggressively push a rollover or advise on this. So, you know, net worth or income-based retainers are kind of like an interesting new model that's coming in, you know, so people just have, you know, an advisable universe that they're kind of managing and providing advice on without needing the specific AUM to to create a bill. So uh, that's something we do and we found found a lot of success there. But yeah, I mean, I would also add just, right, get educated. It's funny, we talk, I feel like we talk about fees on this podcast, not because we really care, um, we, just because the average consumer has no idea what's going on and wall street's made it this way. Right. And like, it's, it's actually probably bad business, right? Like if, if you want to run a successful business, you're not going to make five podcasts talking about fees, but like, it's just such a racket that like, it is literally the most, one of the most expensive things somebody will pay for over the course of their life. And they have no idea what options are available to them. So, I mean, research is great and also just trusting the process, but I, I mean, we do, we think it's infinitely important. And by getting these things right on the front end, you can have a dis disproportionately move the odds in your favor. I think that's well put. And I do love our fee structure for that reason. You know, what did I say probably 10, 15 minutes ago? I don't blame clients for doing this. Clients do this because they're sitting there with five or $10 million and they're thinking, hey, I'm not going to pay 70 or $80,000 a year. So let's just, let's, let's only give a portion to the firm to manage. And so, you know, it's just such a no brainer. Why wouldn't we have a fee structure that just says, let's create a transparent, reasonable fee, and then let's get to work. Let's look at everything in the balance sheet and let's see where we can add value. I love it. So good. Well, Justin, um, that's what we got on that. But to wrap up today, we're going to, demo a new segment. We're going to, we're going to make it quick. So highlights. Okay. So what's the best thing you consumed, experienced, or enjoyed in the last two weeks? And I would also say, or something that reignited your optimism in the, in the American, in the human spirit, right? Like I think there's so much pessimism, right? And like as investment managers, investing for the future requires optimism about the future. So I kind of want to just 
continue to reorient because you know fees are a little bit of a downer. So let's. So what, what's a highlight? What's what's a highlight for you the past couple of weeks? Okay, I'm gonna go Disney World. So we took our kids to Disney World. Uh, Lauren and I did. This was last a week ago. And I did not grow up going to Disney. I was not a Disney World person. Uh, we've now done it twice with the kids. And my my takeaways, I'm a mixture of I'm amazed, I'm bewildered, I'm still a little bit confused, but I'm mostly amazed. Um, and so I, I think that I'm a convert. I think they've won me over. Uh, I don't think our kids are nine, seven, and five. I don't think that there is a better way to create shared experiences and memories with your kids, especially at that age, uh, that I've found. And so it's an incredible thing for that. But I also feel like I could just, maybe I need to just write an article on the topic. There's so many different things. I'm just blown away. How did Disney build this? Uh, how did Disney create the following that they have? Um, how in the world are all of these parks and resorts packed? I mean, we went when school was still in session with the idea that, hey, let's take the kids out of school so it will be less crowded. Um, and it's still really crowded. So, And I'm just amazed that Disney's kind of pulled off the entire system that they have. It is amazing how efficiently they serve that many people on a daily basis. So yeah, I'm impressed. I'm amazed. I'm also just bewildered by the entire thing. It's, it's, it's really something. Jared, how about you? What's a highlight for you? And their pri- and Disney's pricing power, just impressive. Um, my highlight is gotta be Michael Block. Uh, for those of you who don't know, PGA Championship was last weekend and he's a club pro. So he's a golf professional. So you could, prior to this week, because I bet his rate's going up, you'd get a golf lesson with him for 150 bucks an hour. So he was teaching, uh, ended up in the PGA Championship, finished in the top 20 and had a big payday. And he got invited to play uh, Colonial next weekend, which I'm sure Justin will be watching uh, at his home course. And it was just, it was awesome. He sunk a hole in one putt or he sunk a hole in one on one of the par threes and just the most humble guy, just soaking in every every ounce of the experience. And it was just like a like golf's equivalent of Rudy, just like a real life underdog that everybody was just rooting for and just came out of nowhere. It shouldn't have happened in air quotes, but just played, you know, incredible golf and was just just just, just awesome to watch. So Michael Block is uh is my highlight. That is so good. Yeah, it'll be fun to see him out there here in Fort Worth. Uh looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, that's all we got. Uh, love to hear ideas for future episodes or feedback on the length, duration, types of topics. We're just tinkering with it. So glad you're following us along and we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.